Hello everybody and welcome to the Smorgasbord. I'm Tom Shapira and with me... Hello, I'm Sean Edry. Reborn, reused and recycled. Where's that from? It's from what we're about to talk about <laughs> today. Anyway, this is a comic book podcast brought to you by the fine folks at Seekworth, the best online and unusual source for comic books, news, reviews and previews. Buy their books, read their articles, watch their movies and give... Yes, remember that Sequart is on Patreon. Support smart criticism in comics. That what pays our bills. Well, yes. no, not really. Not our bills, but... Yeah, you know. someone's bills. Yeah. We do, we? This, we do this for love, not yes. money. But we, we do love some we, money. We do love money. Yeah, that's yes. true. Fine capitalists. But not as much as DC and Marvel do. We'll get to them. Yeah. Shall so, we start with the news? Let's. Speaking of money, yes. you know who made a lot of money? Deadpool. Deadpool. That's news? Well... I don't think anyone was expecting the movie to A, be as good as it was, and B, be as successful as it was. In fact, when they, in the build-up to the movie, I think you and I both agreed that this was either going to be a huge success or it was going to be a huge failure. Like, there was no middle ground here. Uh, so, the Deadpool movie came out, yeah. the first R-rated superhero movie since Kick-Ass, and that's... That was sort of out of bounds, independent kind yeah, of thing. Yeah, Kick-Ass using using superhero for Kick-Ass. Well, no, it's it, yeah. Anyways, so Have it you came. Seen I've seen Deadpool, okay, yes, so and everybody was shocked because it opened first weekend one hundred and thirty million dollars, which is double its budget on the first weekend. To quote the man himself, "I'm touching myself tonight." That's a quote from the movie. <sighs> Yeah, so it, it, it's a sh- <laughs> even the most optimistic of projections only anticipated half of that. I yeah. think the biggest the biggest uh, prediction was, oh, it'll make sixty million dollars on the opening weekend, which was reasonable. Cons- it, it, that was considered optimistic. That was considered what an R-rated superhero movie. The only people who go to watch superhero movies are thirteen-year-olds, which apparently not. Yeah, or my preferred my preferred idea is they're very good at sneaking into theaters. <laughs> now, parents. Don't take your children into the Deadpool movie. No. No. The children no. have to sneak in by themselves. That's, yeah. that's the only way they'll like, learn. Wash your hands of the responsibility. Mm-hmm. I know a minor who's seen this movie. I don't personally suggest that because that would be breaking the law. But, you know, parents, mm-hmm. don't be surprised so, is all I'm saying. Uh, Sean, you, we have seen the movie. What yeah. is your opinion about Deadpool? I, okay. Going into this, I think... I was part of a very large group of people who were suffering from a bit of Deadpool burnout. Be, at least in terms of the comics, he has been everywhere. And it's easy to get sick of it. But going into this, I thought, okay, let's try and clear the slate and watch this and really evaluate it as its own thing. right? Take mm-hmm. Deadpool out of the context. I laughed my ass off. Mm. This movie was funny. It was charming. Like, all this time we have been saying that Ryan Reynolds would have been a perfect Deadpool. And he proved it. Yeah. He, this is someone... And, and I'll, I will admit that Reynolds' own marketing for this movie, the way that he's been so enthusiastic about it on Twitter and in interviews and just going balls to the wall 150%, Adds a bit of charm to the whole Superhero process. Superhero movies sort of live and die by their main casting. Mm. If you have the hero right, if you have the protagonist right, everything else could be sort of waylaid. So Marvel movies for a long time had, you know, second-rate villains at best or sure. even third-rate. And, and sometimes- the trend continues here because the villain, uh, Ed Screen, last seen, I think, on Game of Thrones. No, no, no. Not last great. seen on the Transporter remake. I don't know nothing about that. But... 
he was also not great. Uh, Gina Carano is always fun to watch, but nobody goes to see her acting. They go to see her kick butt, which she did. But Reynolds was perfect. Uh, I really liked... Brianna Hegland? Oh, she was... I mean, she was fantastic. She's not Negasonic Teenage Warhead, but well, she's... They Negasonic just Teenage Warhead is a one... She's a character who appears yeah. on one page. Two. No. Uh, more, Whedon brought her back. Well, Whedon bought something. But we yeah, won't get into yeah, that. Spoilers for In any Whedon event. Brought. So it's like, it, they just took the name and slapped it onto a completely different character. She's more like Chamber, I think. Explosive and really sort of disaffected teenager. But in any event, she was fantastic. Um, I forget her name at the moment, but the, the woman who plays in the Morena Baccarin was really good. And so the casting was fantastic. Let's start with that. Um, I think the, the major appeal of this movie and the reason that it has attracted such a huge audience is because of its irreverent tone. Mm. There are in-jokes to Green Lantern in this movie. There are in-jokes to there, Wolverine there's, there's Origins. There's in-jokes to just about everything and anything. James, like, uh, at one point, Colossus says to Deadpool, you know, I'm taking you to the professor. So he says, McAvoy or Stewart? <laughs> you okay. know, there's a lot of sort of no, subtle... Uh, my opinion about this movie is yeah. It's very fun, mm-hmm. but it is very... I'd hate to say, you know, problematic, so I'll just say annoying in some of its points... It has this tone about itself, like it's doing something very new. There's this scene in the trailer, which I thought was only going to be in the trailer, where he cuts a person with a sword, and he's saying, oh, you were thinking to yourself, this is a superhero movie, but this guy just turned the other guy into a shish kebab, and I said, okay, that's just promotion. But it's in the movie, and it's yeah. like, oh, like it's this brand new thing that the superhero kills people. I'm sitting there thinking, dude, this is 2016, this was, you know, seeing a superhero kill somebody was maybe new when Superman 1 came in 79. No, no, Wolverine, Wolverine. Wolverine in X-Men 2 shish kebabbed dozens of people in one scene. We had Kick-Ass. We had the Punisher Warzone. You know, Iron Man killed people in the Avengers mm-hmm. movie. Superheroes now kill in films just about... You know, super, no. Superman killed a guy. Usually what happens, though, in superhero films... Again, like, this is the, the difference between what Deadpool does and how superhero movies in general deal with it, is that if they kill, like, faceless mooks, they don't dwell on it. Like, Deadpool really enjoys killing yep. these guys. With, uh, you know, Wolverine in the X-Mansion, in X-Men 2. You don't... The camera doesn't really focus on what Well, we don't... When when, Guardian, when the Guardians of the Galaxy kill, you know, like, dozens of mooks, they, they, they seem it's to... It's just spaceships exploding, no, and no, they're no, already no, dead. Sorry, Groot killed, you know, dozens of people. And they then, were already dead. And then he smiled about it. No, They're this, zombies! Yeah, well, I mean, in that's Guardian exactly the, the galaxy. Thing. Yeah, we, the the necro. Yeah, they're not zombies; they're guys. They're dead. They're, and you know, in any necromongers. or like when Yondu does the thing with the spear, yes. right? So they all sort of like turn to dust. And when villains die, it tends to be the result of their own hubris. Like, how does the Red Skull die? Yeah, right. He gets the cosmic cube and he's disintegrated. How does uh, dying by lack of contract for a sequel? But I mean, isn't that usually how it plays out? Deadpool is different in that. It flaunts the fact that it does not want to yes, fit into that mold. I, but it does. Like I said, it's a very generic movie plot-wise that thinks that it can cover its own genericness by pointing at itself. And at a certain point, and it's a very early on point, half an hour in, I'm already like, look, you can't do a generic villain and a generic revenge quest, the generic... Uh, and for all his protest- protests about him being an anti-hero and not just a regular good guy, Wade Wilson of this movie is probably... The goodest version of Deadpool you ever saw. Here's a guy who's in his very first introduction as Wade Wilson. 
you know, you think he's going to do something horrible as a, as a merc, but no, he just threatens a guy and, and then refuses to take the money from the girl who paid him because, you know, she's a college girl and she needs the fun. That's like, that's too nice. I want, it's that's rare for me to say. But isn't that Joe Kelly's original version? No, no, character? Joe Kelly's version was a lot darker. Deadpool Not would, that much. Deadpool would have... Not that much. Joe Kelly's Deadpool would kill that kid and would take the money and would use, mm-hmm. use it to celebrate. No, okay. It's, and it's fine. The movie does its own thing. I'm just saying you can't celebrate your own daringness while being plot-wise and character-wise at the end very average. But that's exactly what it does. And, well, and, yeah, and that's what it does. And that's the based, problem for me. No, but the reception... If the reception proves anything... It's that there is something to this movie that people are reacting very strongly and very positively to. And I think what that is, is the willingness to poke fun and parody itself and the overall... Like, you you remember when um, he makes an explicit comment about... Why are Colossus and Negasonic the only mutants yeah, okay. in the mansion? Yeah, like, but, is there no one else here? Yeah, but self-awareness... Could Fox not afford the other characters? Yeah, but self-awareness is not something new, you know... In, no, in superhero movies I, specifically. I think Guardians of the Galaxy did it a lot. But look at how successful Guardians of the Galaxy yes. was. It's like, that's the thing. When you are looking at the overall Marvel movies, and, you know, I'm including Fox and Sony into that, the movies that tend to be the most successful are the ones that break the mold, right? Winter Soldier, Guardians of the Galaxy. These are movies that... Say, okay, you have the typical superhero formula. Let's try something a little different. Yeah, I'm, again, it's a fun movie. Yeah. Go, go, if, if you're over 16 in Israel at least, go and watch it. Sure. And if you're under 16, you should sneak in again like a proper child. You should just buy a ticket to something <laughs> light and fluffy. The smorgasbord does not endorse minors seeing this movie, but if they happen to, have a good time. Yeah. Uh, speaking of Guardians of the Galaxy though, James Gunn had an interesting comment about Deadpool's success. He went on Twitter after seeing the movie and, you know, he really enjoyed it. He did say, though, he expressed concern that Hollywood might learn the wrong lessons here and think that the movie made as much money as it did because it's R-rated. So let's make all the movies R-rated. And I think he's right in this sense. I think that there is a tendency to really only look at the most basic layer of, well, Deadpool is R-rated. And Deadpool succeeds. Therefore, R-rated superhero yeah, there was succeed. So let's show... Marvel Marvel movies succeed. Marvel movies are in a shared universe. Everything needs to be in a shared a- universe. Exactly. Dracula Untold should be the first part of a Universal Monsters uh, trilogy of shared universe. And I, have, and I have mixed feelings about that. Because when you look at how a more mature framework is applied to superheroes, generally speaking, right? It can work sometimes. Well, Deadpool is a lot. The, the Deadpool shows. movie is a lot of things. It's not. It's not mature. It's. It's mature in the ways that comic book, you know, with our, oh. with max ratings are mature. It's. It's like, like Ellen Moore said, when you call my comic book mature for mature readers, you're saying tits and blood, right? Is that what it, it is, though? It's Deadpool. Deadpool is not exactly history of violence. No, but you're talking about mature themes versus. Yeah. For, you know, if you ask me what's the more mature film, I would say The Winter Soldier is a far yes. more mature movie than Deadpool, even sure. though... But let me ask you then, The Winter Soldier was not rated R. No. Had it been rated R, do you think that would have substantially changed the content? No, you would see more blood. But Captain America wouldn't swear suddenly just because he could. Right. You would just see more blood in the fight scenes. That's, that's about it. And Deadpool surprisingly not very gory. I think that no. because they didn't... 
it was a very low-budgeted movie. And you can see it in the construction of the film because it, there's basically only two action scenes. And what they do is they cut back all the time from the main action scene flashback. Mm-hmm. Then cut back because they couldn't afford... To show the very ex- very expensive computer animate that I don't think screen. anybody minded that though. No, it's also very appropriate well, it's, for it's, Deadpool specifically. Yeah. No, like it's, he... it's a it's a very strange structure. But I'm by watching it, I'm saying, well, yeah, obviously you could, you just you don't have the budget, and I assume the next movie would be, <laughs> yeah, they would have all of the money. Oh yes, um, and but to be honest, yeah. I hope that they uh, back to right. you, speaking of about James Guardians, Gunn, yes. Yeah. So James Gunn has, in addition to making this very insightful comment about. Deadpool, he also confirmed that Kurt Russell will be in Guardians of the Galaxy 2, yeah. most likely as Star-Lord's father. Yes. That seems to be the general... He didn't say that, but that's the obvious yeah. role. He also confirmed that Mantis would be appearing in the film. That's... For those of you who know who Mantis it's... is, I don't... Th- this one does. D- do tell. She's like a Jim Starling space Madonna kind of thing. Not this the is cel- the bald not... woman? No, no, no. That's Moondragon. Okay. The, the big problem, because I did an article a while back about who would appear in Guardians to like doing a future projection, and Mantis was the lowest rated chance because she's also a green woman. That's the visual design, and I was saying they already have Gamora, they wouldn't do two green women in the same movie. But who is this character? Like, she's I don't like, know who she, it is. That's the thing. In, is she... She's a alien martial artist with like minimal psychic powers, and she has like these antennas. I don't think I've ever seen her before. She was in, mostly in the 1970s Starley's Adam, War- Adam Warlock stuff. And she was a big part of the Guardians of the Galaxy Relunge in 2008. The Dan Abnett and the Lightning one. Hang on. Is she the lesbian character who was no, involved with... No, that's Moon Dragon. Moon Dragon with, with Captain Fi- Marvel. Yeah, with Phyla Vell's Captain Marvel. Mar- with Phyla Vell's Oh, so Captain that's not Mar- Mantis. No. Okay. Again, it's... Um, it's a strange choice, but I assume they will change her enough. And she... She had this really annoying habit of talking about herself in the third person. Oh, God. That one does. This one speaks of itself. No, no. no. Well, I'll assume they change it or she'll speak, you know. They'll find a decent enough actress to make it work. Comics news? Uh, Comics news. So, DC have announced a number of exclusives. Mm -hmm. Uh, Tom King, Clay Mann, and John Timms. Now, here's the funny thing. In the press release itself... It mentions that the fate of Tom King's Vision series is unknown. No, we know it. He Do said we know it. He said it, yeah, on, online, on Twitter recently. When? What did he say? Twelve issues. Seriously? Yeah. Which, okay. well, I can I Marvel can gives that. him twelve issues, which if, when I can you look, look, Marvel gives. When you look at Tom King, no, no, no. When you look at the sales charts, that's, that's pretty generous, actually. Well, listen, because, if it's a 12-issue miniseries and King knows that and he's building towards a proper ending, I can live with it. Yeah. It's okay. Um, good for DC, I guess. King uh, should be a bigger name than what he is right now. But And I think the what DC is doing, signing him up for exclusive and giving him the big push, you know, we know they're going to put him on Batman. That's... That's the thing that they need to transform him from fan favorite Tom King to superstar Tom King. Although I did notice something with this announcement, which is that amidst all the announcements of exclusives, they did not offer that to Tim Seeley. Which well, I don't think Tim Seeley wants to. He still has this title at Image, right? Revival. Oh, but you know that exclusives don't matter to Image. It, They're well, talking well about, like, that's the thing. Don't for, go work for yeah, the for, other guy. For a long, long time, exclusive at Marvel and DC only meant don't cross the street. 
That's yeah, but <laughs> but that was you know years and years ago, and now there's there's so much competition. You know, you have booms and IDWs and Dark Horse. Yeah, but I don't think that DC care about I, the I, indie and stuff. And I I think I think because they, they wouldn't they wouldn't. Be I think entitled. they do. I think they want Tom King to keep his personal stuff at Vertigo. But Tom King, no, but they don't use Vertigo as a platform for creator-owned material. Even if you're on Vertigo, it's not creator-owned. Well, yeah, but they want. So, well, that, does that's Tom, a, does Tom King own the Sheriff Babylon? I don't think so. Well, I, I, I like, think as from everything that they said when they relaunched Vertigo, like under after Shelly Bond left, yeah, when Shelly Bond, there was never any discussion of creator-owned material. And my understanding well, I has think always been that you own you own the rights. They can't just produce, you know, the Sheriff of Babylon 2 by Jeff Jones or something, but they probably get a better cut out of the movie, of the movie rights or stuff like that. I don't know. It's but an interesting I, question. I, we'll see, but I, my assumption is that King will kill, if he produces other creator owned, you know, alternative stuff would be via Vertigo and not via Image or Boom or whatever. Well, I'll say this yeah. much then. Whatever King decides to do, Besides Batman, I'll be into. Like, I will at least give it a look. Because, you know, he, as as we said, you know, he got the smorgies for Best New Writer for a reason. He is inventive. He's innovative. I like seeing what he does. So we'll see what happens. Uh, these other exclusives, what do you think of uh, Clayman and John Timms? I think nothing. Because, you know, Clayman has is, is been in comic for a long time now. Is I do not know him. What do he draw? That's the thing I can't remember. He's just, <laughs> you know, he's one of these workhorse artists as far as I know, but I never thought of myself, oh, it's a clay man, I must buy it. Now, some people just might. And the other guy, what you said his name? Uh, John Timms. I don't even know that name. Okay, well, but that's me. I'm assuming that DC I signed these exclusives for a reason. Yeah, I haven't read a lot of DC recently, so maybe he's been doing, you know, great work on one of their... Uh, B or C titles, you know, I don't know, drawing a Teen Titans or something. Whatever. Uh, speak, well, let's keep well, it on DC, DC then. Uh, Hang on, my water just broke. I think it's time for Rebirth. So DC have finally announced the complete uh, plans for what will be their Rebirth slash Reboot slash whatever there's <laughs> did you see the twitter announcement rebirth it's not a reboot i think that was jim lee who put it up or, yeah. or possibly the deal it's a reboot they have a very planned schedule since june so yeah. we'll have some rebirth specials which will be big number ones mm. and we have two books going back to the original numbering which will be action comics and detective yeah. comics when you say original pre-52 I think they're counting the 52 and adding it up. Oh, okay. Which, you know, it's fine. It's, right. it's less confusing than what Marvel is doing mm-hmm. with their number. Well, we have this common joke about, you know, Marvel needing to hire a house mathematician to explain their numbering. Point Bynum, zero, bi- zero, yeah, one, Bynum five. theory, the Fermi problems, Marble numbering, <laughs> the, the three big questions of, of modern math. Pythagoras is yes. just like, no, I don't have time for this. Some of the big things about it are a a lot of some of these titles will be like we said bi-monthly, well mm-hmm. fortnightly. Specifically, uh, they've announced thirty-two ongoing titles, and fifteen of them will be shipping twice a month. Yes, so that's half the line. Yes, and okay. these titles will be three dollars, two so ninety-nine. Well, for the first year at least, I assume. Mm-hmm. Uh, that's that's a big announcement in in today's market. When Marvel is basically feeling free to up the prices from four to five dollars and working towards five dollar monthlies, not just five dollar number ones, five dollar monthlies. 
So that's big news, and that announcement alone will make me try a lot more number ones than I naturally would. Hmm. Now, yes, a lot of them are double shipping, and I don't want to spend six dollars, so maybe I'll just buy them digitally and decide. But it'll still cost. Yeah, I mean, you know, the price is. And some of these rebirth special will be apparently eighty page giants. Okay, which will cost like a dollar as an introduction, which that's a great thing to do. That's how you. Promote yourself. You're letting people buy the first one and trust them to come back to number two and three. You assume what you're doing is good enough for people to want to buy more. What's Marvel doing is saying, well, we only want you to buy the first number one for $5 because we know you won't come back to two and three. We've pretty much given up on the idea of you coming back. So let's just take as much money as we can on the first round. Which, if nothing else, you know, implies that DC thinks they have something there. If they do or if they don't, I don't know, but they think uh, they do. Well, I'll tell you this much. I mean, going over this new item, I had a lot of mixed feelings. Um, regarding the price point commitment, mm-hmm. you're right that it is, I mean, it's crazy to say it, but it is revolutionary for them to openly declare that they are committed to $2.99 as a price point across the line. I'll believe that when I see it, because we have heard these promises before, and they have been lies. Mm. So I'm not. That, well, it's not. I'm they, not that impressed. They, if they hold to it, then sure, kudos to them. Look, I'm not. I'm not expecting DC five years from now to still be. I'm not expecting DC five years from now to exist, but that's a different story. Um, if they do it for a year, I'll be impressed. If they do it for two, I'll I'll applaud. Even if I don't like the comics, okay. I'll applaud. Now the actual. But let's set the pricing aside for a moment and look at the actual books because, well, to do be we know anything about- honest here? Yes, and we don't have creative team information yet. Yeah, other than Tom King doing uh, Batman, that hasn't been confirmed. Actually, uh, it's like ninety nine percent open rumor. Yes. In any event, I'm looking at these at this list, and the only thing going through my mind is that there is nothing here for me. Not a single title that they announced made me go, hmm, maybe I should check this out. You know, and well, because there's nothing. It's a lot of Batman. It's a lot of Superman. You know, and what they did, what this list does not show is the list of canceled titles, which included Black Canary, Secret Six, Doctor Fate, Omega Man, Catwoman, Midnight, or We Are Robin. Basically, anything that took a creative chance in the last. last yeah, but months. we've talked. We've talked about the fact that these were financial failures and that they are there for being canceled. That's very much in line with what. We were expecting going into this, but to to say that their entire line will consist of Superman, Batman, The Flash, Aquaman, Green Lantern, the end. Well, they also they still have Bad and Girl Titans. and Go- they still have Bad Girl and Gotham Academy. Great. It's like I'm kind I'm of not... interested. It's Superwoman and Super Sam. Simply, what what is that? It's probably Damian Wayne and Superboy would be my guess. No, but, but Superwoman? Superwoman... Who's going to be... Su- who's who's Super- Superwoman? That, that's the thing. There hasn't been a Superwoman in years now. Not Cyril. I don't know. I don't the last Superwoman, I think, was the pre-New 52. They had uh, Louis Lane's younger sister as an anti-Kryptonian crusader. I... Yeah, War of the Superman. Not, not a very great storyline. No. No. I mean... This really does go back to something that we've always talked about in context of these kinds of reboots, relaunches, whatever. There's really no point. You have these line-wide relaunches, but they're going to fail for the simple reason that it's the same people who screwed up before. 
This is not the product of new talent. These are not new voices. It's just musical chairs and a lot of talent being shuffled around to different books. Some of that talent is genuinely good. But hey, they canceled Secret Six. Where's Gail Simone going to go? Probably to Superwoman. Probably to Batgirl. And it's like, okay, but we've seen that already. You know, they don't really have anything new. And anything new that they did launch has been canceled. Low sales, relaunch, whatever. You know, there are ways around... Well, no, no, no. Again, Gotham Academy is still ongoing, so obviously... That's the only one, though. And They canceled Midnighter. They canceled Grace. Like, the books that people have, as far as I've seen, universally enjoyed. Sales, schmales. Well, uh, that's what it is. Here's the thing. Again, universally enjoyed that we know. It's like that famous quote about after Nick... Was it Reagan won the election about... Well, I don't know how he won. Nobody I knew voted for him. Yes, Sean, we, we know the people who like Gotham Academy and that like Midnighter and that really like Grayson. Yeah. We are the minority. Like it or not. I don't and think DC isn't, DC doesn't have to, doesn't have to publish this book simply to appease us. And, you know, no, it's annoying to me that these titles are cancelled, but I can't no, begrudge problem, a big company for I can be, I certainly can begrudge the fact that they're output is constantly shrinking to these core characters regardless of whether or not these books survive a year or if they sell 10,000 copies or if they sell 100,000 copies. I can certainly I mean again, speaking only for myself as a prospective reader who really wants to give DC a chance and yet I'm looking at this slate and there is, I'm not exaggerating when I say that there is nothing here for me, not a single title. Again, but we don't know anything about the creative. It doesn't matter I don't want to read Superman I'm sorry, Superman, as far as I'm concerned, you know, if I didn't go in for Gene Lon Young, I'm not going to go in for whoever they bring in and now. And if it's Tom King? Still no. Really? Not Superman. Well, I... Like, I, again, I, My... th- this has been done already. There is a certain, and they're really doubling down on, let's just go for the core. There isn't a single book here that is somehow atypical or that steps outside of the Justice League mold. And I'm well, not for interested me, for in For me, that. a good creative team is pretty much everything. So if there is an interesting creative team, I will give it a shot. And I don't care if the character is Superman, Batman, or the you Joker's give it a daughter. shot, they will shoot back and cancel it in six months. I'll Again, see. like it's a stability issue, too. Because mm-hmm. you're dealing when you're dealing with Superman, right? To say Gene Wen Yang's run on Superman... Lasted how many issues? 12? 12. 16? What was the point? It's not a book that you can get settled in and be like, okay, I'm here for Yang Superman and it's going to last. It's not like they're not doing the sort of thing that they did with Snyder's Batman where he's been on that book for like 500 years. And he really has had a chance to build this whole mythos for himself and go in all these different directions. Slightly repetitive from time to time. But still, like that's his substantial run. I don't feel... I'm not in the mood to get invested in, let's read Aquaman number one and sit in for the next 12 issues with, I don't even know who, like... Uh, the, the big problem with DC for me is not the relaunch, it's not the titles, it's they don't have a lot of in-house big name talent. They I really mean, don't. They have Jeff Johns, they have Snyder, they have King, and they have Amanda Connor, which should be a big name. Simply and Simone. A- I mean, let's well, be fair. Simone is, hasn't been... But is she doing... Oh, right. She's doing Secret Six. I, for, I totally Not forgot anymore. She's doing, well, I totally forgot she was doing something for DC other than the Vertigo clean room thing. You and everybody else. No, I but mean, why isn't Amanda Connor a bigger name? She's doing a Harley Quinn, one of the most successful characters 
Why isn't the mere fact that somebody mentions Amanda Carter makes everybody stop and say, oh, that's interesting. And she's a great artist. That's weird. I think because there has been... Like, she's mostly associated with Harley Quinn, right? Yeah. But there's a lot of baggage around Harley Quinn right now. Yeah. So uh, what, what I'm saying is DC doesn't have a lot of names that could draw a crowd or yeah. critical appreciation simply on the basis of... And the names that they do have, they don't cultivate. Because it's also... You know, we, we were very, very critical of Marvel in the last round of previews because of the price point. But yes. what we didn't say at the time, and we probably should have acknowledged, was that at the very least... You know, their pricing is completely out of control. But they're at least trying to cultivate new voices. Fizekis and Butters and, and all of these new people that are coming in. Some of them they're we'll least... talk about in this later in this sure. episode. So they're at least trying to cultivate new talent to whatever extent that is. Here, it's like, I don't... Who are the new people at DC? Right? Who Tom King is like the last person I can think of who really jumped in. Ming Doyle has disappeared. They're not doing... James Tinian is still doing uh, Hellblazer, but that is also getting relaunched, and I don't think he's sticking around for that. You know, like, where are these new... Where's the new writers? Are you giving it all to Jeff Johns again? Yeah. It's it's a problem. And, again, like, I salute them for this two ninety nine commitment. I'll, that, sal- that salute will be sincere if they stick to it. But even at two ninety nine, I'm not going to read Super Sons. Mm-hmm. I'm just not. You know, so it's kind of a letdown. Previews? Or, wait, no, no, no. Uh, the Daredevil trailer, right? Well, okay. We'll just say a few words about the Daredevil trailer because I know you haven't seen it. No. Um, There's a I, trailer I, for I, Daredevil. <laughs> well, no, look. I'll, I'll say this much. Having seen the first season, I don't need all that much to get excited for season two. But I will say this. The trailer focuses very heavily on the introduction of Frank Castle as the Punisher. And I was skeptical about the casting, remember? Yeah. From what I have seen, this guy knows what he's doing. It's going to be okay. He's going to be a proper adversary, like the the right kind of Frank Castle when you juxtapose him with Daredevil. I will be completely honest in that I was watching it and like smiling and great, everything's fine. Then you see like the Netflix logo and then there's like a little bit of a stinger at the end because it's a Marvel product. You got to have the stinger at the end where Matt walks in. Pulls a knife out of the kitchen block, and there is Elodie Young sitting on his couch, you know, Electra, and saying, you know, hello, Matthew. And I was like, yes, they're doing the Electra saga. At least, like, I knew it, but when you see her, when you see them interacting, first of all, have they announced the bullseye? Because it's no. hard to do an Electra no. saga without a bullseye. That's the thing. Not only have they not cast bullseye, there was a reference to Bullseye last season. Yes. But it, it was never followed up on. They might be saving that for... This might be like the first half. Mm. And then maybe season three. Well, if, yeah. Bullseye. well if Punisher is the main actor, it's going to be very different from Frank Miller. Because Punisher only appeared in like two issues of his run. But I think that's the story they're doing. Where oh. like he is killing the yeah. people that Daredevil is fighting. And then in the middle of that, Elektra comes in... I don't know. There's a lot of different ways that they can mm. go, but this is going to be like the Electra Saga, and I am ready. Speaking of Daredevil and the Punisher, we yeah. should go on to the previews. Let's. This and is the previews with for Mar- May. Yes, and we'll start with Marvel, Sean. Sure. Uh, it's Punisher month, apparently. Yeah. Uh, nobody told me, but... So in, basically- in this house, every month is Punisher <laughs> month. <laughs> well, let's take it from the top, then. Okay. So, um, not a lot of new launches in May in general. But one of the ones that caught my eye was Punisher number one by Becky Cloonan, art by Steve Dillon. And I have to ask Tom, is this the first time the Punisher has been written by a woman? As far as I know, well, no, because Val DiRaggio had a one shot. 
But she, that was a that was a Panther Max? Max. Yeah, Panther yeah, Max butterfly. 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 But I said butterfly. Book. I don't know why. It might have been better. We don't know. I will admit to have never read it. Yeah, no, you know, ne- but neither have I. Anyway. But it's the first time that there's a woman on an ongoing Punisher as a writer. Kudos. That's interesting. The and fact Be- that it's Be- Becky Cloonan is... Becky Cloonan is a good writer, and she likes some heavy metal, which is always good for a Punisher writer. Would you have pegged her for a Punisher writer, though? Based on, like, her past work? Well, it's I, a bit surprising. I, haven't, I haven't finished reading the first arc of... What was the thing? Southern, Southern Cross. Cross. Yeah, but... Wasn't very good. Well, yeah, but but it's you know it's like hardcore science fiction type. Yeah. it's not so. Yeah, why not? Well, I mean it, that's very different. And from, like, the, Punisher. Yeah, and they have still Steve Dillon, which is for my money the quintessential now, Punisher see, artist. This this is indicative of a strategy that will work. What do I mean by that? There was always going to be some measure of resistance to the idea of a new writer coming along and it's another Punisher again and Remender didn't do very well with the character the last time. And, you know, there's a lot of of questionable past there. But pairing Becky Cloonan, who is definitely a new voice, and you know there's going to be talk about, oh, a woman can't write Punisher. You know that's going to come up. But pairing her with Steve Dillon means that when you look at the book, it's going to look like... Classic Punisher. Yes. Dylan did the Garth Ennis Welcome Back Frank, which is mm-hmm. for my money the best Punisher story. It is story the ever. iconic story. Yeah. And he also did Punisher Max with Jason Aaron, which is one of the most highly regarded Punisher stories of the last five years or so. Yeah. So see, that's, that's clever. Mm-hmm. That's something where I do need to tip my hat to them because the story will be Clunin. But if you are the kind of person who is really invested in the Punisher, you're reading this and like your eyes will be fooled because you're seeing Steve Dillon again. That's that's clever. Well, that's an interesting cool. trick. I, I'll be checking uh, it speaking out. Speaking of uh, d- of the Punisher and Daredevil, yes. there's a reprint. There's uh, a reprint of Daredevil versus Punisher means and ends, written and drawn by David Latham, which is oh, I remember that one. That was good. Yeah, it was a six issue mini about the Punisher fighting Deadpool. Daredevil. <laughs> Deadpool. <laughs> I have Deadpool on my mind. The Punisher fighting Daredevil. Yeah, which, that was a good miniseries, yeah, by yeah, the way. I mean, it was fine. I don't recall it as being super great, but it was perfectly good fun. The big thing, it came out during Garth Ennis' run on The Punisher, in which he was, you know, the absolute slaughterhouse, and that was the more humanized Punisher. Right. I remember... Okay, so... Yeah. See, we're, we're approaching this from different angles, because you remember it as coming out during Garth Ennis' Punisher. I remember it as coming out during Brian Bendis' Daredevil. <laughs> <laughs> it's like, these things technically happened at the same, same time, time, but from very different angles. Yeah. Uh, and speaking of Daredevil versus Punisher, there's a new four-part miniseries by Charles Soleil. I'd say take a shot, there's a new Charles Soleil book out, but you ding. will die from alcohol poisoning in now, a month. I want to point out here that I have not read Soleil's Daredevil yet. Hmm. I'm waiting on the the first arc, and then I'll, I'll take a look at it. Obviously, all of the, it's not a coincidence that all of this Daredevil versus Punisher stuff is happening in May. It's clearly meant to capitalize on what's going to happen on the Netflix show. Um, Soleil, from all accounts, has been doing okay with Daredevil so far. Hmm. So I don't think that this is going to be a problem for him. I'll, I might check it out. Uh, Nighthawk number one, written by mm. David Walker, with yeah. art by Ramon Villalabos. Marvel? Can we talk about this for a second? I, Marvel I, is doing something with the Squadron Supreme? Who, did someone, I need like an explanation here. Did someone tell Marvel that people really want Squadron Supreme and they are therefore doing all of the Squadron? And like, what is this? They're putting, you own the Avengers now. This isn't an X-Men versus Inhuman situation. See, but, and they're putting good talent on it. David Walker, good writer. Ramon Villalabos, great artist for my money. But, Nighthawk? No. 
They, no, thank they're, you. I, as far as I can see, they're doing something. They're taking something from the J. Michael Straczynski run on Supreme Power, where Nighthawk was basically a black separatist who only protected black people. But that's not this Nighthawk. Is well, it? no, but they're. I think they're hinting at the previous. You know, darkest protector and. A uh, very shady uh, superhero kind of guy. Mm, now, see, the well, thing is, mo- I'm pretty sure that night the the non supreme power Nighthawk is white. Well, I don't know. So I again, like, there's a whole issue there that I don't want to get into. Well, but we, we don't know. We have Chuck Wendig's Hyperion. Yes. We have who's writing the main Squadron Supreme? I Somebody don't we even know. Re- I don't even remember. <sighs> Who is it? Anyway. But, but Squadron Supreme is tanking. I think it's Humphreys. I think yeah, it's probably. Squadron Supreme is tanking in sales. Is it? Yes, yes. It's gone, baby, gone. I don't, I mean, nobody's talking about it. I don't know. I haven't I, read it. Well, again, here's the thing. It could have been inter- sort of interesting. Could you it? Know? Yes, if you have good enough talent. And it could have been interesting, but Marvel has too many things out there. And they're, like we said last episode, they're cannibalizing their own readers, yeah. readership. Well, it's also that I think they might be a victim of their own quote-unquote successor because I'll admit that when it first started, I really liked J. Michael Straczynski's Supreme Power in terms of how it built the characters up. That went completely off the rails at some point. I don't remember. I think about like 10 issues in, something happened. I don't remember what the like something involving rising stars. I, I, and, I, I, just, and that, a, was, that I, never came a, I never liked JMS. I never... I don't have the. I'm a not lot, a huge fan. Yeah, a lot of people still hold a candle for him from his Babylon Five days, no. and they keep on saying, "Oh, Babylon Five was great." I'm, and I'm, having watched Babylon Five, I can tell you and, now. And I'm saying that was 20 years ago. What have and, you done for me lately? Yeah, and Rising Stars was 15 years ago, even more. Uh, Late 90s, right? Well, there was a delay there, right? Yeah, it, it wasn't even finished. And all of his recent comic work for me was <sighs> terrible. Yeah. And his Thor was just And B, uh, Supreme Powers was basically publicized as the new Watchmen. And no comic published as the new Watchmen is going to be the new Watchmen. Yeah. That's the, here's the rule It for was you. good. Don't yeah. get me wrong. Like the first six issues, I would say, were, you know, they really But had then a... they went for another 40. And then no. they re- Yes, and then they relaunched the Supreme, as J. Michael Straczynski's Supreme Powers. They were no, like, 50. it was always Supreme Power. No, no, no. Uh, Squadron Supreme. They relaunched it as... Uh, oh. his... Okay, by that point, I had stopped paying attention. Yeah, but there were like 50 issues overall. That was a long series. Anyway, so I don't uh, know I don't know why this book exists. I'm not going to read it. I'm, I'm interested, but... Are you? I'm, yeah, because, again, Walker and Villa Labos. But it's Nighthawk. But it's Walker and Villa Labos. I mean, like, listen, okay. you can get Villa Lobos somewhere else. You can get Walker somewhere else. You, I mean, mm-hmm. what is the appeal of this specific book? It's not like this is the only thing that Walker is working on. I think I'll look at the first issue. Right, Anything else for you from Marvel? That is all I've got from Marvel. Yeah, uh, we should just mention uh, the Brile... Mi- the Brile. The Blah. Yes. The Brian Michael Bendis Crime Noir Compendium, or mm-hmm. Omnibus. That's a reprint of basically all of his... Owned, you know, pre-Marvel, pre, oh. pre-image stuff. You know, we have Goldfish, Goldfish Ace, Jack, Queen, King, Joker, Jinx, Fire, and Torso. All right, so all listen. in a one huge, one thousand one hundred fifty-two page omnibus, one hundred twenty-five dollars. Listen, I'll say this: that price is ridiculous, and no, but 
Well, it's 1,000 pages. Jinx. I mean, I want to go on record here. You know, I have given Brian Michael Bendis a lot of crap over the years. Mm -hmm. I will say that Goldfish and Jinx are two of the best, not even the best Bendis comics, but two of the best crime noir comics that I have ever read. I've read Goldfish and I didn't like it at all. I thought it was fantastic. Jinx was even better. I mean, Jinx is really the best. You've read it in real time or like years? No, no, no. The, I read like the collected editions mm. of both. That might be part of it if you only read like the, uh, as it was coming out. No, 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 no. I've, it came on, I was like 12, man. Mm-hmm. I don't know. You could have been reading Crime Noir when you were 12. Yes, obviously. In the comic book shop in the kibbutz. They, they had, <laughs> they had, you know, tons of Brian Michael Bendis. They didn't hold all these Spider-Mans and X-Men. <laughs> only black and white private, private, privately branched comics. Hey. Yes. Anyway, so, um, like, I will give him that. And this omnibus is interesting. I mean, if you really want to have it all in one place, go for it. I don't know that I'd pay $125 for it. It's black and because white. Because Fire and Torso were not so good. So, mm. I don't know. Yeah. If you are so, if you've never read these works before. It's um, nice that they're in back in print. Yes. These yes. are the kind of things that should be Jinx in print. and Goldfish, absolutely. They should get Fortune and Glory reprinted while they're at it, because that's also... I think Image is printing that. I think Image still owns sure. the right. Uh, DC? Okay, so we have to do this. Scooby-Doo... Oh, Scooby. Scooby Apocalypse number one. We talked about this last time. I have warned DC against the possible horrors of opening Hanna-Barbera's tomb. If you didn't learn from Tutankhamun... You're going to get this curse and you're all going to get sick and you're all going to die. But anyway, the creative team has been announced. It's Jim Lee and Keith Giffen writing art by Giffen and Demetrius. I took a look at the cover and it has Cyborg Scooby and Shaggy looking like a child molester. I don't, I don't want this. And that's really all I've got. Well, if you don't want it, you can always read Scooby-Doo Team-Up 16, number one, written by Charlie Fish with art by Dario Brizula. In this issue of the, one of the best series of DC's line, seriously, uh, Scooby and co are teaming up with Shazam. See, that and, I might... I and Talkie Tawny. <laughs> who is the most... Oh, my God. Who is the most bizarre talking animal? Talkie Tawny or Scooby? Only you will be the judge. I guess we're about to find out, aren't we? Uh, we should mention that Future Quest, what, Future Quest 1 is coming out. That's yeah. written by Jeff Parker and drawn by Doc Jenner, mm-hmm. which means it will look glorious and will probably be good. Mm, no. Jeff Parker, yes. No. Okay, no, I'm, I'm not saying this mm. as a word against Jeff Parker. I like Jeff Parker, but no. The big thing, I think, for DC is the reprints uh, section because uh, this month, this month, the month of May will give us Northlanders Volume 1, the Anglo-Saxon Saga. Now, what they're doing is they're reprinting Northlanders by Brian Wood and a bunch of artists, like a big bunch of artists. Hmm. But instead of doing it on issue-by-issue basis, they're doing it based on story arcs because Northlanders basically jumped from time and place. Yeah. So this first collection with art by uh, David Gianfele, Dean Ormiston, Ryan Kelly, and Marianne Churchland, which is good art team, mm-hmm. has issues 1 through 16, then 18, 19, and then 41. Right. That constitutes like one storyline. Well, like a bunch of storylines centered around the same cast of characters or the same okay. time and place. And Sandman Mystery Theater, book Woo! one, written by Matt Wagner with art by Guy Davis and John Watkins. That's 320 pages for yeah. $30, 12 issues of Sandman Mystery Theater, and which is good. I'll say this. 
Sandman Mystery Theater is one of those series that when I read it, I'm like, okay, this is not for me, but it's good. Yeah. Like I, I appreciate and acknowledge it as a really good series that did not appeal to me personally, but that does not detract from how good it is. Um, Image. One other no uh, point of interest about DC this is more of an absence than a presence. Uh, no sign of the master race. It's in delays. And how? Well, you can you can do a big lunch. <laughs> I can have a little shot. No, no, you, you can do a big lunch of some something old and very popular without it being in delays. You know, Sandman Overture. It worked for them. Frank Miller is not Neil Gaiman, nor will he ever be. He was. No. Yes, not on his it not was, on his best. Listen, it was me. a dream when Frank Miller was at the height height of his talent and popularity. Not an inch. See, I disagree. I I take uh, best Miller over best uh, game in every day. Okay, you're entitled to your wrong opinion. That's fine. <laughs> image, <laughs> image. Uh, so again, image like, is a very weak month. I think this is. Mm. Is there like some kind of reason that? Because generally speaking, there are not a lot of new things in May. Are they? I guess maybe they're building up for like the summer period. Or yeah. Something. Well, they have the Image Con after that, so so that might Image ex- Expo. Sorry. Yeah. So they're sort. Of, they might be holding on to because really, there's yeah. only two new series announced here, and only one of them is plus it's free Comic launches. Book Day month, so that might I'll, be it. Too. Yeah. All right. So, what was your take from Image? Just one thing. Uh, Pop Gun War: The Gift uh, TPB. That's a reprint of Feral Del Ripples Pop Gun Seek. Pop Gun War sequel, which a very strange story about a, a small child with angel wings. It's strange. Okay. It's it's the ripple. It's strange. Like- <laughs> it's wonderful. It's beautiful. Okay. Yeah. Uh, the only point of interest that I got from Image was uh, Brian Azzarello making his debut. Sure. This is his first Image book, apparently. It's Three Floyd's Alpha King. This is a five-part miniseries. Co-written with Nick Floyd, art by Simon Bisley and Ryan Brown. Now I had to do art some by Simon here. Bisley. Yeah. Ooh, I like me some Bisley. There's apparently in real life a brewery called Three Floyds. I don't. So they're selling beer with it. I don't. It know. sounds like the type of thing that Ezra Miller would do. I, well, Buy does. this comic, get some beers. The previous text made no sense whatsoever. Like I didn't understand. This is a story about the people who are actually making the brewery, but it's a fictional account of a real brewery. Brewery. I got nothing. But I mean, listen. Good for Azarello for moving to Image. You know, this might be part of. I don't know if this is like explicitly part of that whole exodus to Image that people were talking about a while back. Where DC had apparently driven off some of their talent because of all these uh, rules and regulations, uh, editorial mandates and stuff. So there was talk at the time that a lot of their names were moving over to <laughs> create their own stuff. And I'm just imagining Eric Stevenson. You remember when Dave Chappelle did Rick James? There's yes. this thing where he's like, come. And I'm just imagining like Eric Stevenson like throwing open the door. He's like, come on, come on. You all are welcome. All are welcome. Anything from Dark Horse for you? Nothing. What have you got? Uh, I should just mention that Brendan McCarthy's Dream Gang is getting the TPB uh, treatment. That's a collection of uh, the shorts that appeared in Dark Horse Presents, the recent pre-lunch. Mm-hmm. Imagine Brendan McCarthy's doing Sandman. Not Gaiman Sandman, Jack Kirby's Sandman. Oh. A gang oh. of misfits fighting to save the dreamscape. Sounds good. Yeah. I had never heard of it. Uh, it's fun. All right, I'll, I'll be sure to it's keep not, it. It's not the best McCarthy work, but it, it looks great because Th- McCarthy... This was only published in Dark Horse Presents. Yeah, yes. Okay. So now it gets the TPB treatment, and you should give it a shot. Great. Even two shots. 
IDWWTF. Okay. <laughs> okay, so I need some I you, need some explanation that's, that's, for this. That's been announced before. Sean is like shocked. I had never heard of this. Well, this I is wrote like about brand it, new Sean. Reddit. You're not reading my articles in Hebrew. I, I don't read Hebrew if I can avoid it. In any event, no, because then I turn into like one of those 80-year-olds who has to read like one letter at a time. I don't want to okay. do that. So, okay. William Gibson. The William William Gibson. Gibson. The man, the father of cyberpunk. Or I suppose grandfather of cyberpunk. No, father. Father. Father of grandfather. Okay, yeah. yeah. All right. He's still the father. You know, he's just a very old father. Papa Gibson uh, is working with Bush guys guys to produce Archangel, in which evil politicians create a new reality to corrupt. Dude, who even... I can sit here and talk, like, recite the previous... It's William Gibson. It's William Gibson. I'm ready. I'm here. I don't know why this is happening. This is like when, when they announced that Chuck Palahniuk was doing Fight Club 2 and we were like, why? Why is he doing a comic at Dark Horse? But I mean, William Gibson. Well, we were kind of disappointed from Fight Club 2. We were, but again, like Chuck Palahniuk is hit and miss even in his novels. You know, not all of his novels were as good. Uh, Gibson, there's, here's my dirty secret as a science fiction fan. I don't like Neuromancer. I've read it three times and mm. haven't enjoyed it any single one of them. I'll admit that I, I appreciate the setting more than I do the specific stories in it's, those settings. It's important. It's like important yeah. to the genre and to science fiction and to literature in general. Therefore, it's not a very good story. I don't know. I, I take Neil Stevenson when it comes to cyberpunk. Oh. Stevenson's good. Yeah, I, I do. I'm a, like I'm a snow man. crash man. That's fair. That's yeah. fair. Uh, so we, we discover all those big differences between us in this fucking <laughs> like a Miller man, a gaming man. Sure. Uh, uh, what? Like, wait, me being a gaming fan is new to you? Well, <laughs> yeah, but did you prefer you prefer the best of gaming over the best of Miller? Well, yeah, yeah. because okay, well, it's people, a, no, no, no. Just to say, at the very least. Gaiman never tainted his legacy the way that Miller did. So yeah. I feel like there's that. But that's a different discussion. Okay. So, so from the we're high... reviewing this. Yeah, Let's yeah. be absolutely clear. From, okay. So IDW from the highbrow to the midbrow. Okay. Transformers Classics Compendium Volume 1. That's the first 50 issues of the Marvel Comics Transformers. Reprinted in IDW. Uh, uh, one, one, over 1,000 pages, $100, written by Bob Budiansky, Bill Mantello, Ralph Macchio, Jim Starklip, mm. with art by Don Perlin, Joseph Delbo, Frank Springer, Ellen Copperberg, William Jensen, Herb Crimpy, Richard Villamanto, Graham Nolan, John Ridgway, Mike Collins, Woo. and Mike Manley. Wow. That's a lot of Transformers. Mm-hmm. No. Yeah. Uh, yeah, so if you're a Transformer I fan, mean, okay, so you know, roll yeah. for it. Roll I, for it. So IDW is basically trying to gather all of the Transformers materials in one. No, place. no, they already own them. They're just reprinting them in a companion now because they reprinted them in like yeah smaller volumes, before. like having convenient collections yeah. of all the past. Okay. I'm, I'm kind of cu- they're saying the first fifty issues up until now. Ev- any single reprint of Transformers by somebody other than Marvel couldn't print issue free because. Issue 3 of the original Transformers series had Spider-Man guest appearing. Oh, that would have been complicated. Yeah, so they're saying the first 50 issues. They don't saying... They're not saying, at least in the solicitations, well, other than issue Was it an issue essential three. issue or something that you could cut out anyway? Well, it was part of the... The first th- four issues were like a miniseries. So oh. it's like one-fourth of a miniseries, never in print. 
Just cut out the panels where Spider-Man's in. He's it's not just a guest appearance. He's like a major star. Oh, <laughs> because it, it was Marvel Transformers, and you know the law in the mid '80s was you have to have Spider-Man as a guest star. So Spider-Man was basically Shia LaBeouf in the first Transformers movie. Well, is what you're telling me? I I remember liking it, but I was oh. a child. I've reread it as a child. Okay. Uh, and I should mention Atomic Robo and the Ring of Fire. Yes, That's the first collection of the Atomic Robo now that it's moved on to IDW. Mm-hmm. And it's basically Atomic Robo versus Giant Monsters. Yeah, another book that's very good, but not for me. Yeah. Uh, anything for you from Boom or someone else? Surprisingly, no. There were no new launches that caught my attention with Boom, but... Uh, okay. The, I it, have it's to... just a weak month. No, no, no. Here's the thing. That's, we've talked about it before the podcast, so yeah. that's just weird. Bring it in. So Boom is publishing something called the Black Dahlia hardcover. Now the Black Dahlia, a very famous novel by James Elroy and a very good novel by James Elroy. But here it says writers James Elroy and David Fincher. Superstar director. And when you mentioned that, I thought you meant David Finch. Finch. And I was like, uh. No, no, David Fincher, superstar director, David Fincher, and James Ellery writing comic book version of the James Ellery classic detective story with art by somebody called Matt. <sighs> one name, Matt. What's, what's up with artists only having one name? One day it's gonna say like, R, R O L, capital letters, and we're not gonna know who it is, and it's gonna turn out to be Rob Liefeld. We're going to be like, nope. It's just weird. You're just trying to rebrand uh, yourself, but we're not falling for it. Yeah. So, shall we, we go? Know, we know those chests anywhere. Shall we go on to the reviews? Let's. Uh, we'll start with Marvel. Sure. Power Man and Iron Fist number one, written by David Walker, artist Sanford Green with colorist Lee Laridge. Mm-hmm. And the plot, Luke Cage and Danny Rand are not teaming up. That's <laughs> official. That's what Luke Cage is at least screaming. <laughs> As they uh, join together to do a favor for a former for a former comrade, an ex hero for her employee named Jenny Royce, who just came out of prison after serving five year stretch for murder, mm-hmm. manslaughter. This may have been a plot in a previous. Series. I assume it was. I yeah, it was a plot. I, no I assume in a previous heroes for her. Series. I mean, Walker gives you enough context yeah. to go from there. Okay. And they team up to basically save a family heirloom that's being held by the evil gangster to- Tombstone. Mm-hmm. And that's the story. Sean, thoughts? Okay. So there were a few things about this that I really enjoyed. Mm -hmm. First of all, the relationship between Iron Fist and Power Man tends to fluctuate depending on who's writing them. I really like the way that Brubaker and Fraction wrote them. As like, you know, they're old friends. They're practically family. They work together. But there's always sort of like this difference of personality where Luke Cage is more reserved than he used to be and danny is more of like the adventurer the fun lover who hasn't quite grown up yeah this version is more uh look cage is a straight man and danny rand is yeah not the Which fool is, but like the over enthusiastic yeah, guy he, he's he's got more of a humorous approach it's he's the pinkies to look cage brain pretty much he wants to bring get the band back together right he's always looking for a way to get luke to team up with him again and i really enjoy how Iron Fist and Power Man as a team uh, are iconic in-universe. Like, every mm. time somebody sees the two of them together, they're like, oh, hey, you guys getting back together? And Luke is like, no, we're not. And Danny's like, I wish we were. <laughs> you know? That's cute. I like that. Um I did have a bit of a problem with the way that Walker wrote Jessica Jones in that she basically spends the entire issue on the couch 
Well, it's being not, this it's, caricature it's, of the shrewish wife. Well, not shrewish, but it's not her book. She no, but it's you know she is a part of Luke Cage's life, and yet her role in this issue is she hates her husband's best friend because she thinks he's a bad influence on him. And well, she, Luke agrees. And Danny even says, you know, your wife keeps you on a short leash, which is not really a great way to depict her specifically. My big problem was not the character interactions, which I really liked. It was the story, which is just, you know, standard story. The tw- there is a twist. Mm, there's and a twist. It, and it's so heavily telegraphed. Is it? I, I well, not like... the specifics, but the general tone of, you know, what's what's the deal with this character? It's kind of obvious that no. there is a deal for me. I think it, it might have been more obvious if I knew who she was beforehand. But the way that Walker introduces Jenny, you have no reason to think that she's... Um, you know, like, th- there's there's a twist here that we're not going to spoil, but... Yeah. I don't. I don't know if it was obvious. I think it might depend. Well, it's not obvious. I. I don't know the character. I haven't read a That's lot of classic Heroes for Hire. But when they signify that there's supporting... something wrong, that there is more to her than just you know uh, leaving jail and trying to start a new life, I was like, yeah, you're singling a bit too hard there. I mean, she's basically Luke Cage at this point. Luke Cage in the beginning of his origin story was someone who had just gotten out of jail and wanted to rebuild his life. So oh. I like that parallel. Okay, let's let's talk art. This I wasn't a really huge fan. No. I love it. The design is just so cartoonishly beautiful. They're so unique, but it, uh, there's a problem I, and, with proportions. I, no, no, he has like this really small head and this giant, these giant <laughs> arms. And see, even that, it wouldn't work for me if this was attempting to do like realistic illustration slash draftsmanship. But they're obviously playing it. In a very stylistic mode. You can even see it in the angles of the story, like when Luke and Danny enter the building, mm-hmm. enter Tombstone building, and it's shot from down and in a specific angle where Luke, Luke looks even bigger. Yeah, but what is the difference in that panel between yeah. him and, and Iron Fist? Yeah, well, Iron Fist is slightly at the back. And I'm, I'm loving it. It's like saying, this is about the style and about the sense of place and the sense of genre mm-hmm. of being like this funky 70s thing. More than being just realistic draftsmanship. Mm. Even Tombstone looked like, you know, like giant mafioso guy rather than a big brick supervillain. Yeah. I mean, it is understated and I appreciate that. The facial expressions I thought were a bit off at some, at certain points. Mm. But, I mean, overall, I, I, it's not the sort of thing that would drive you off the book. No, for me, the sort of thing that would bring me to the book. For me, okay. the art was the greatest thing here. Yeah. And Lee Lowridge, you know, colors are very, very good. Just beautiful stuff. It's the kind of thing that makes me, you know, love, hate Marvel because I want to go out. You're, you're publishing, you know, too much stuff and you're pricing it too high, but this is what I want superheroes to look like. I don't want to, I don't want to read another generic looking superhero book. I want right. them all to have a personality of their own. Well, also, to be fair, you don't have to read it. Yeah, you know, no. The, the, the upside to Marvel flooding the market the way that they're doing is that at the very least you can say as a consumer and as a reader, you have a lot more choice. You do not have to read something that you don't want to. Green's art doesn't look like anybody else's art. Right. Which is something I always and it appreciate. Has going for it. I feel like, I, I, I'm sticking with this series for now. Because I do enjoy the way that Walker is writing Danny and Luke. I, I like that pairing. Um, I'm not, the, the, there's always going to be a challenge of writing a proper Jessica Jones. And Jessica is going to be part of this story simply because 
even after the reboot and the relaunch or whatever, she's still Luke Cage's wife. She's still the mother of his child. So they do play into that here. But um, I don't know. It has potential to go in an interesting direction. Mm. Presuming that Marvel doesn't screw it up in the next six months, I feel like I could stick with this for an arc just to see how it's going. Okay. What do you think? Are you sticking around? I think I am. I okay. think I am. Uh, Snow, Image? Image, Snowfall number one, written yes. by Joe Harris, arced by Martin Morazio. Yes. Now, I say this. It is February 19 as we record this. It is 800 degrees outside in the middle of what should be winter. So reading a title well, about we are snow in, we are already in the pissing me off. We yeah. are in the desert. We're, we are in the desert and... and so reading a book about snow was already inclined the to evils annoy of me. Snow. The evil snow as a weapon of evil. I'm like, just give me a little. Okay, but we, snowfall. Yes, we, we're in the year 2045, the far off future year of 2045. <laughs> uh, it no longer snowed following a strange crash that left the climate ravaged, and society splintered into the newly Christianed cooperative state of America. Corporate. Corporate. Cooperative. Or it's co- cooperative. Cooperative States Oof. of America, which apparently is run by the evil corporation Hazelton, mm-hmm. which is a terrible name for an evil corporation. It's not very <laughs> evil. It sounds like something you find in your chocolate, but okay. Yeah. And the only man who fights the evil corporation of evil mm-hmm. is the White Wizard. Slightly racist, but okay. He's Gandalf. I mean... He fights with the power of snow. He's not Iceman, but he fights with the power of snow. And we mostly follow this young student guy whose name I can't even remember after reading the book twice. Eminently forgettable. Yeah, who tries to join the White Wizard's war on crime. Which apparently isn't happening. Or is happening. I don't know. No, no, no. I know. It's just... Okay, the first two-thirds of the book are exposition, exposition, exposition. And yet, for all that exposition, they skip. Harris skips over sort of a very fundamental aspect of the premise. This is supposed to be a dystopia, right? The yes. White Wizard is fighting an oppressive society. A 1984-type dystopia, yeah? Says who? You know, you don't see people getting oppressed in this issue. Like well, for no. all that he talks about, the cooperative states of America, whatever, you see people sitting at university, right, discussing ideas openly. Nobody is being sent to a workshops. Nobody is being enslaved. There's no, there's none of the, of the visible cues that would say like this is a dystopian. No, for state. me, that's not a problem. I have no problem with the dystopia being understated for a bit. Forget understand. Where is it? Like, how is this a dystopia? Well, it's dystopia in the term that there is only one way of thought and the university will only teach, will only teach you the voice of the corporation. Where do you see that? When it's the, not explicitly when the teacher is basically lecturing the students about following the rules. Yes, but there there are no guards there pointing yeah. guns at that. It's well, like, it's like that's not the problem for it, me. The problem no, is that the premise is, is that the white wizard is fighting the evils of this corporation. How and what evils specifically? Like, what are you doing, and it for what purpose? That that's where I that's where the plot lost me. It's I like, think I the plot understand. lost me by not existing. It's so generic. <laughs> There is literally nothing there. There is nothing. It's evil corporation in the future, and there's this rebel, and the government tried to paint him as evil guy, 
it's V for Vendetta without any of the new ones fought. The, the or... premise made it sound so much more interesting in the yeah. sense that, like, you know, he's an eco-terrorist and he's using the weather against these corporate... It's like, that doesn't actually... I think the first bad choice they did is setting it up in 2045, which is too close. They have the <laughs> scene where the teacher is saying to the students, you don't know what snow is, but your parents remember. And I'm like, dude, that, that's a bit too much. Why? If the If the premise is that... They the, they've heard about the it. The environment goes wrong in like the twenties. Yeah, and this is twenty forty. Yeah, but it goes wrong too fast. It's like one of these stories when they leave Earth for like hundreds of years and they come back and evolution changes. But evolution doesn't work that way. No, environmental crash even that fast. Even something as stupid and bearing in mind, I'm going to compare it to one of the stupidest ecological stories ever. Even something as stupid as Waterworld <laughs> <laughs> took place. You know, hundreds of years in the future. Yeah. Even that had the forefront of saying, it, we need to make it long enough that people will forget. Yeah. It also doesn't help that the the supposed angle here, like the the visible marker that shows you that there's something wrong with the environment is the fact that it doesn't snow anymore. There are places in the world where it doesn't snow anyway and it gets along just fine. We live in one such place. I haven't seen snow in 20 years. But in any event, it's I'm like... I'm sorry, Sean. I will decorate my apartment. I will make it <laughs> snow here if no, that's what you want. But think about it. Like, if they had saying, if they had said it doesn't rain or there's no water, then you're saying, okay, it's like tank growth, Well, right? no, yeah. It's like that's, that's... You can see that there's something wrong. Here, it's like to say that it doesn't snow, so what? You know, they still have water. These yeah. people are not dying of thirst. Yeah, Morazzo's The corporations are... aren't like hoarding water and, and letting people die. So I don't, I don't understand why snow specifically. Cause snow is just, you know, it's frozen water. It's not the be all end all of, of environment. Well, it I, might, it I'm, might not, indicate... I'm not a climatologist. I have no idea. No, I mean, it, it might, it's like global warming, but the usual scenario for global warming means that the water level rises. It's like, like in, what was the name of that, that, um, there was a miniseries, I think, with Vertigo or Image where it was like ninth, the water level. Nine, uh, ninth wave? No. No, no, uh, Snyder. Snyder? Yeah, like the, the Leviathan? The Wake? No, the Wake. That's the what wake. it was like the water level really rises and like that's the new apocalyptic society. Okay, here it's or like. Or Brian Azzarello's Spaceman. Sure. I didn't get that feeling from this. It's like you don't. It's like they have this interesting idea to do something differently, but they don't phrase it right in a way that would make it interesting. Mm-hmm. Morazzo's art should work better. There should be something very interesting in this scenario alone of this guy basically using the snow like the shadows. Yeah. But it just doesn't come out right. It really doesn't because when you see it's the not, white wizard in action, it's not that impressive. Yeah, it's not it's not bad. It's just not impressive. You know what they should have done? They should have taken the cue from you remember Storm in the '90s Fox series? Come wind, no. blow these. In. It's like there was know, there was this issue of um, John Byrne's Alpha Flight, where it was uh, what's her oh name? God. No, 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 Snowbird. Uh, yeah, Snowbird fighting the evil snow something in the snow. Oh, right, the all white issue, yeah, yeah, which, which was at least interesting visually. Yeah. Do something with with the visuals. This one, nothing. That was a what if panel, I think. Yeah, Joe Snowbird fought Sa- White Sasquatch or something. I don't know. Joe Harris is is you know he's a writer. He's, he's usually better. He's, than he's this. not new. This is just ham fisted. Yeah, it without needed, without the ham. I think this like it, fake ham fisted. It needed like stronger editorial oversight, like someone to tell him you need to <laughs> approach this plot from a different direction because this isn't working. 
But, you know, not for me. I don't. Okay. I don't I don't want to know, yeah. And our last number one. Yes, you, you suggested this. So Second Sight, written by David Hine, art by Alberto Ponticelli, coloring uh, John Kelly says, and that's the first book we'll review by Aftershock, which yes. is a new publisher which basically jumps straight out of the curve. You know, usually new publishers take a long time to get steam. Boom, I think, published stuff for like five years before I even read a single yeah. Boom title. But Aftershock are just jumping straight around with Big names, big titles, big launches. Well, I think it's easier now. Like now that Boom has sort of cleared the way for people to think about yeah. smaller publishers, it's easier. Now. Okay. Like Black Mask, I think, also had. Sort yeah, of... but Black, even Black Mask, you know, Black Mask is. Now I will your... say that when you suggested this title, I did not know that David Hine was writing it because I love David Hine. I like David Hine. I I, I don't very, love him. Very... Okay, so the plot: Twenty years ago, Ray Pilgrim was a celebrity weird detective kind of guy mm. when he discovered the unique ability to see through the eyes of psychotic killers. But that was the past. And nowadays he's the owner of a second-rate bookshop who is constantly hounded by the media because of something that happened. There was an, there was an, an incident. incident, yes. Yeah. However, his daughter has the investigative uh, like knack, we'll say, mm-hmm. and she runs a blog exposing uh, child abuse and, and such stuff. Which is a good thing, except that somebody is now targeting the both of them for something evil. Yeah. yeah. Unrelated to her activities, yeah. or so we think. Well, yeah, this is the first issue. Okay, second site number one. Uh, one thing the market doesn't need in general is another weird detective. We have, like, dozens of them, and usually it's an annoying formula ever since, I'd say, Sherlock. Where, you know... He's too smart for this society. He doesn't need your help. But Second Sight works for me for two reasons. One, he already had his high, high days in the past. This is him after after everybody already forgotten, not forgotten about him, like thought he's a second rater now. Like in the movie Mr. Holmes. Yeah. And B, his daughter gets equal billing. So it's not just the one guy who will save us. We have... A future of some investigative do here. And they're not working together. No. Is a thing. They're working from two different angles. Yeah. Uh, Sean, your opinion. You know, I like David Hine a lot. Uh, I enjoyed Strange Embrace. He had a good thing going with District X until it got derailed. Um, he's really a writer who's at his best with creepy horror. And this book delivers that when mm-hmm. it comes to like depicting the, the serial killer that is targeting that it's not really clear what's no, going on no no there. there's like this strange uh snm club type thing it's, it's like what, what was the peter milligan series from vertigo from the early vertigo the extremists i think yeah so. yeah 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 something like that so he does set up the initial mystery in an interesting way i do want to see what happens next um i like the gimmick of how the second side is portrayed yeah because like it would have been too easy for him to be like I can see the future, like precognition, and that's it, right? And Heinz specifically hasn't said, like, no, it's not precognition. I can just see through other people's eyes, and I can't control it. And you can see, like, his spirit is a two-dimensional icon going out of his body. And what really amps up the the creepiness factor, I think, here, which is definitely intentional, is that based on what this issue seems to indicate, the killer knows this and is looking back. Which is really freaky. Like the, the, I'm not going to spoil the specifics, but there's a moment where the killer is looking at the mirrors and, and he's, he is speaking to the psychic. 
I thought that was great. And I'm, I, I know it's gonna go to an even more interesting place because David Hyde tends to start oh, off. Yeah. You know, this is for David Hyde, a slow start, and he will wrap it up. You're, you, have you read Bulletproof Coffin? Uh, heard about it, never read it. It's just, it starts off kind of insane, and by the end, it makes Grant Morrison look like, you know, a flower child. <laughs> like, oh, no, sweet he, summer child, Grant Morrison. He has that in him. He yeah. has the ability to, like, go really weird. But I think he can be, he tends to be a little more grounded than Morrison. Well, he, he's grounded in a lot of stuff because for a lot, long time he worked with other characters. You know, he wrote Spawn for, like, years and years. Really? Yeah. Ooh. And he, you know, when you write an X-Men character, you can't go all out. You're so, under no, the well, thumb of Marvel. But like District X at the time, I don't know if you, if you read that. I haven't. It was, it was only around for a year. Yeah. But it was like the premise was Bishop patrolling Mutant Town. Yeah. So he got a lot of mileage out of like not dealing with the X-Men per se, but having these murder mysteries with really weird freaky mutants. And that, that's his ballpark and he seems to do really well with it. Uh, what wasn't clear, is this an ongoing or a yeah, yeah, series? Yeah, it's ongoing. Ongoing series. You always bump up against like the problem of mysteries in ongoing series. Like, it's are they going to solve this at some point and then start a yeah, new yeah, mystery? Yeah, I assume so. I don't know, but uh, it, I will. It looks to be a bit hellblazery. There's something to that. Yeah, right? in both in tone and in terms of the prospect of what happens next. Yeah, but in this case, it's unlike Hellblazer. He can still fashion out his own version of the supernatural. Also, unlike Hellblazer, he has an equal. Or supposed equal who's running around counter to his purposes. Like he, he, the relationship between him and his daughter, I really like the way that Hein played that, where she's not antagonistic towards him. She loves her father, but she's going to do what she thinks is right, regardless of what he and thinks. I like the fact that the book is called Second Sight, and yeah. we don't, it could be anybody, they could bump him off. At the end of the first arc, or even in the next issue, and she'll take over. We don't know. Well, it's one of these nobody's safe because it's not a title protagonist. You know, John. Does Constantine, she have powers though? Well, not yet, but we don't know. It's okay. like John Constantine is the Hellblazer, so we know he's safe. So it's always which one of his friends is going to die. We this know that issue. now. I think that at the time well, that it launched, Hellblazer. Well, ta- yeah, but after the first twenty issues, you knew. Hmm. Uh, this is we don't know. Nobody's safe here. And since it's a creepy horror book, at least from the first issue, he can go, he can do whatever he wants. And, yeah. you know, I approve. So after Shark Comics, if this is an example of what you're publishing, I'm there. I'm interested. I will be keeping an eye on this. On to the main course. Yes, you chose it, so you'll, I did. Uh, yeah, you'll announce. So we will be reviewing Toil and Trouble. This is a six-issue miniseries from Boom, written by Margaret Scott, art by Kelly and Nicole Matthews. I should say Archaea. Via Boom. Yes. That's more accurate. Okay. So this was, from the moment that they announced it, it seemed like a really, really intriguing concept. It's just to tell the story of Macbeth from the perspective of the three witches, the weird sisters. So we have Smertai, who returns to Scotland after a long period of exile, reunites with her sisters, Kate and Riada, and they act as invisible observers and manipulators who move the pieces... In accordance with Macbeth's story, which we all already know, of course. And it turns out that these sisters are practically at war with each other because of this unclear prophecy. Riata wants to prove that Macbeth must not be allowed to become king because disaster will come of it. And Smertai wants to prove that he is the rightful king and that it'll work out. And you have this whole um, conflux of events in which... These sisters are manipulating fate to their own ends, and it ends 
well, it's Macbeth, isn't it? <laughs> yeah. <laughs> the ending is, is foretold. So what I thought about this, I'll start with the writing because the writing was unfortunately a bit weak. And I say that in the sense that, how do I put this? In itself, the prospect of exploring this particular story through the eyes of the weird sisters is pretty inventive. Um, there's explicit reference in the story to the fact that the Greek fates have disappeared and, um, who else? You know, there's a reference to like other well-known mythological witch figures have faded away and they're the last ones and they are trying to manipulate Macbeth's fate to prolong themselves as well. Unfortunately, where this series went wrong from my perspective is the fact that the sisters themselves, the protagonists of these stories, lack depth. I mean, when you look at the dynamic between Riada and Smirtai and the fact that Kate is like the neutral one, she just... She's the balance. She's the balance. She's and the Riata of the group. Yeah, and Riata is naturally cold and inflexible, and we're supposed to sympathize with Smirtai because she's loving and warm and, and wants what's best, but we also know that she's naive. Mm-hmm. It's like, it's very, very rote. flat and rote, absolutely. And I feel like if you're dealing with the weird sisters, especially if you contextualize them as Scott does, as part of this larger tradition like because um when you look at the backstories of these three witches they make references to you know riata was around when uh, rome was at war with the celts and kate had this whole thing they're manipulators of human faith yeah of, you know lines of kings going back to ye old ancient days and supposedly they're not supposed to openly interfere and influence people but of course i think i think one of the big problems for me is that it comes against the other big reinterpretation of the weird sisters which is the gargoyles cartoon from years ago right which did such a good work of making oh. them like cosmic and distance and terrifying and yeah without them being straight out whores they were characters but they were not you never knew what they were doing. And here you always see what they're doing from the get-go. Yeah. I mean, the, the, I remember mm. like in Gargoyle specifically, um, there was, they, they make like their first major appearance when they talk Demona down from the, like the stone apocalypse mm. that she's trying to pull off. And all they say to her is, you know, who, who caused your, your problems, right? Who, who is the author of your downfall? And it's like, it's her. Well, yeah, it's a different interpretation because that they were basically the three in one. Yeah. They were, they were the, they were the they separate, were the they were the separate cuckoos almost. Pretty much. No, but there was also like, you know, you had the whole mother maiden crone thing going on over there. There was a lot of the tendency tends to be like you, when you have these three witches. So they're all of the witches. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> they're just all of them. The weird yeah. sisters are also the norns and the fates and the, 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 the. I like that Scott gave them, like, she does separate them. Yeah. Like, these are the witches of Alba. They are three distinct characters. They are not the Greek fates. They are not the Norns. None of that. But at the same time, if you're going to define these women as individual characters, it somewhat undermines your purpose if you really go basic. And that's what she did. I think one of the things that makes them into a different character for me is the art. And yes. Okay. I don't know who the Matthews are. They should be, um, they should be famous. Mm-hmm. Th- this should give them an Eisner nomination. If nothing else, this is just amazing. I hardly even looked at the story the first time around because this is just lush. 
Yeah. The characters are defined simply via the way the art shows them. They're always in movement and they're always changing shape. There's always something yeah. a bit different going around and they have these familiars which are also shape changers. And you can always recognize which character is which even when one of them becomes a mermaid or a hawk or a dove or... And you can also recognize like which characters are being influenced by which environment which yeah. at a specific time, like the the markings ah, and the it's stunning. This is just who are these people? They're brand new. I think yeah, this, I, I don't know. You I, know, Archaea usually has, finds great artists to work with, but this is just stunning. This is just way, you know, way you know, breakout talent of the year 2016 for me. I, and the year just started, but this is just amazing. It sounds so reductive for me to say this, but it's, it's, it really is how I feel. I wish that the story was on the level of the, the art. The art. The, there are two big problems for me other than the ones you mentioned. Mm-hmm. If you're doing Macbeth, you intentionally or not, you're competing with Shakespeare. You're putting yourself around the bar. And there's, not that that's a bad thing. Well, no, but there's basically one guy who managed to do that up until now, and that's Stoppard. Not true. I... I Everybody, I mean, okay, Rosencrantz and Guildenstern is fantastic, but when you think about it, I mean, you brought up Gargoyles. Yeah, There's but, a lot of yeah, but that, but that took a lot out of it and changed a lot of the context. Here's the thing: this works around Macbeth, and we only reached the proper plot of Macbeth by issue four, I'd say, when, um, when he when when he first meets them as the Weird Sisters. Up until then, it's like Macbeth, the Hidden Years. Well, no, but secret to, origins of Macbeth and Macduff. To be fair, everything mm. that she displays like yeah, in it's real ma- time it's it is in the play yeah it's mentioned it's but, you, know, you know Shakespeare couldn't show huge battles every single think of the night. budget <laughs> the Globe Theater couldn't handle it they didn't but, have the CGI but, but here's the thing by doing that Macbeth and the other humans are basically reduced to just tools of fate there is at yeah. almost no point there is no feeling that he's making a choice even when they're basically yelling at him you know make your choice Macbeth it's always them manipulating him so and they explicitly say that, yeah. you know, the witches are influencing him to... Yeah, but they're not influencing. They're choosing for him at most of the points. Yeah. They're choosing for all of the humans. They're directly controlling so I'm, their minds. I'm expected to care about the fate of characters that within this story, you know, in Macbeth proper, I would care about them. But within this story, they are nothing. They're statistics. I'm supposed to care about the fate of the young child of Macbeth yeah. simply because he's a young child. And, and it gets an really innocent. confusing when Scott tries to cross... Mm. Smirtai's backstory with Macbeth, like she was the midwife yeah. of the child. She put herself Oof. in the role of the midwife to guide his fate. Messy. Super messy. Yeah. It's, I really wanted to like this because I like Scott. She did yeah. fine work on, on her transformation. And again, from. it's a good angle. Yes. Like, you know, I don't think that anyone's ever done Macbeth from the perspective of the Weird Sisters because it's not something that you think about naturally. But, she having and, come and, up with that premise, she doesn't do anything with it. And it's usually the type of story that I don't like. I never liked Wicked, and I thought Maleficent was one of the worst movies I've ever seen. Because trying to make the witches sympathetic almost always turns into just the simple rejection of, well, the witches are good, and yeah, she had a good reason. And, I would and, respect it more if it was just like, no, they're evil, but you might as well hear their perspective yeah, anyway. And like this, that's what the villain song is all about, yeah, in Disney. But, yeah, but here it's. It's not that, you know, they're sympathetic, but they're not just good, the good witches and the humans are evil. No, no, no. They're very impersonal about this and mm-hmm. they let thousands, even the good witch let thousands of people die simply because yeah. they feel their ideas about who should be king. She says it. Like yeah. everything that she does is just, you know, 
Macbeth should be on the throne because he's my chosen one. Right. And and Riata is just saying, she's just out to prove her sister wrong. And mm-hmm. it's like, you're doing a lot of, to, to accomplish that. So that, that, that I liked. The fact that they're not portrayed completely sympathetically, I liked. Yeah, but... Which made the, which made the we all make up ending a bit. And then Kate, of course, is like, I want you to stop fighting, and now I'm neutral. I don't yeah, have any feelings suddenly one way becomes another. like Jammet or Rams for It really reason. does. She turns into Shana. <laughs> yeah. And it's, I don't uh, know. I'm not. Uh, you know, for all my, for all the faults, I would say buy it simply to look at what will be the prime talent. And really, this is beautiful. This is, it is. Usually I don't recommend buying comic just for the art unless. I don't. I, I would not recommend Usually that. I don't unless it's someone on the level of like Jeff Darrow or something. <laughs> in, which, in which case the story can go hang itself I don't care <laughs> but this is as close to that as possibly can be this is ridiculous okay this is just amazing I I agree with you 100% about the art I can't recommend it only because no it's it's not bad it's, it's not in, bad it's but interesting it could have been so for much for me it's better. one of these classic 7 out of 10 books which you had so much more potential yes yeah that's exactly it but, but 7 out of 10 we're not usually doing numbers thing, but I just no. wanted to clarify my No, but, but like, it is exactly that. Like, it's a book where you appreciate it should, it the should, angle, but you, you still feel like with every yeah. page, you're like, it should have been more. Kate should have had more personality. Riata should have had more motivation. Like, there, this could have been done much better. I think, and maybe it's just down to Scott's inexperience, because I don't think she's been doing this for very long. Uh, I would like to see more. I think she was mostly working in cartoons before coming to comics. Maybe, maybe I'm wrong okay. though. I don't want to. You know, I, 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 this will not turn me off. Like I will be checking out her next project because this is a good idea. There may be more to it. Okay, so this was the smorgasbord. Yes, it was. I'm Tom Shapiro, and I'm Sean Edry. And up until next time, bon appetit.